Hi, this is David Creek, and you're listening to the Westchester Church Podcast. Check us out at our website at westchestercfc.com. That's westchestercfc.com. The bombshells of Holy Week. We began this a week ago, and we saw Jesus arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, this morning, immediately after this, we're going to see yet another bombshell that's going to unfold. And now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And so, Father, glorify your name. This is something that Jesus had said just as he had entered into Jerusalem at the Passover time. And as soon as Jesus had said this, there had come a voice out of the sky that had said that I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. A lot of the people standing there began to speculate, and some said that the sky has just thundered. Others said that an angel had just spoken to us out of the heavens. And yet Jesus explains that you heard this voice for your own benefit and not for my own. And that's because what God the Father meant as he said that I will glorify you again is what Jesus then says as he says, And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men and women unto me. See, this was the kind of death that Jesus was going to very shortly die. And when Jesus died the death that he died, it was not a bombshell to heaven. God knew that this day was going to come before there was even a world. It did not come as any kind of surprise to the religious leaders because this is what they wanted more than life itself, more than food and more than oxygen. It did not come as that much of a shock to the Roman soldiers who were there because this was just another day of work for them. When Jesus died, it especially did not come as a shock to Jesus. Because right before they went into Jerusalem, Jesus sits his apostles down and he explains for a third time to them that we are going into Jerusalem now and I am to be delivered over. They're going to condemn me to death and I'm going to be delivered over to the Gentiles who will then mock me and flog me and crucify me to death. And yet to these followers, though, who had believed in Jesus, who had quit their jobs, who had seen him do the impossible every day for three years, for these people who were so convinced that they knew the kind of king and the kind of kingdom that he was was bringing to this earth. I mean, we all know what that feeling feels like, don't we? It's an ache that we have all ached. It's a knife that we have all had to go under and will have to go under many more times in this world. Where we're just going about our everyday lives 
And all of a sudden, we receive word that a person has just died. And instantaneously, we can feel our heart plummeting in our chest. As all of the life and the exuberance begins to dissolve from our souls, and a heavy black curtain of darkness begins to move inside. It's like the walls of a dam collapsing under the weight of a raging flood. It feels like a gaping hole has been shivved in our body. And we just lapse into this sensation of a paralyzing grief. And yet for me, though, the most surreal experience of learning of another person's death lies in the dash. That dash that explains and that lies between a person's birth and a person's death. And a lot of times when I learn of a person's death who was of notoriety or of fame, I often go to their Wikipedia page and it's a very strange moment where it's no longer this person is, but now it says Princess Diana was. Kobe Bryant was a professional basketball player, but then he died. And so this morning what I want to speak about is the bombshell of the death of Jesus Christ. Now, I do not speak of this this morning so that we can all wallow in gloom. I'm not bringing this up this morning in order to shame you for for shortcomings and for failures that God has long since forgiven. I don't want to scream and yell about every grisly detail of his crucifixion and his scourging. But rather, what I want to do this morning is to help you and I appreciate his cross with a first century spirit. And so we come to Luke chapter 23 and we begin in verse 44. Luke chapter 23 and verse 44. It was now about noon and there was darkness over the whole land until 3 p.m. while the sun's light had failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, Jesus breathed his last. It was on April the 14th, 1865, It was Good Friday in Washington as the sound of gunfire ricocheted through Ford's Theater as a presentation of a play called My American Cousin had ensued. There's a book that has been written about the assassination of Abraham Lincoln written by Martin um, Degard and um, Bill O'Reilly and the way that they have described his assassination really resonated with me this week. Or what they wrote is that this brain that had dazzled with clarity and brilliance during great political debates, 
this great mind that has struggled with war and the politics of being a president, that devised and executed solutions to the epic problems of the times, this great mouth that had um, given stirring speeches, this mind that had knit the country together and then made sure all of the words that he said were, were uttered with exactly the right cadence, enunciation, and pitch. That hand that had guided those long slender fingers as they signed the Emancipation Proclamation that had given four million slaves freedom. And this brain which was also a reservoir of Lincoln's nightmares, in particular one of which just two weeks earlier, had envisioned his own assassination. Now, thanks to a single round metal ball that is no bigger than a marble, Abraham Lincoln's brain is now finished. Abraham Lincoln was now, he was brain dead. And yet, of course, as we speak about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, though, here is one who is far greater than Lincoln or Washington or, or Alexander the Great put together. Jesus now has been scourged and he's been tortured and he's been humiliated and pinned to a cross with three nails. And for all who looked up at the sight that they beheld that day on Calvary, it could have been um, a process that that heart that had dazzled with grace and with compassion for outcasts and for pariahs, that heart that was moved to weep over an entire city as they rejected the kind of kingdom that he came to earth in order to bring to us, those hands that at once reached out and touched an untouchable leper, that had opened up blind eyes for the very first time in a person's life, those slender hands and fingers that had scribbled in the dirt to deflect the attention off of an a, um, accused woman and, and to bring the attention onto him. Those hands that had received small children into his arms as he blessed them, that had just hours in advance restored the ear to an enemy's head. How those feet that had once walked on storms on the sea, that had taken him to entire cities full of sick and broken people, that regal and majestic voice that had preached the Sermon on the Mount and the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son, that great heart has just stopped beating. That great mind that had envisioned his Sermon on the Mount is now brain dead. that mind that had anticipated his crucifixion long before it happened. Now he's dead. And now the news that is spreading like wildfire all throughout that region of all the people who were not there to see it is that Jesus just died. Jesus just died. And I mean, it's hard to wrap our minds around, isn't it? I mean, we understand that he died, clearly. We just remembered it. 
And yet in this particular moment, though, Jesus was no longer and is. In this moment, as he hangs his head and he breathes his last upon the cross, Jesus now was a was. The I am was a was. And a part of God just died. Well, we know the rest of the story, though. We all understand, though, that God was not dead. We, we all know and we understand that the darkest depths of darkness and depravity cannot contain the light of heaven. And yet in this moment, though, we see that he was dead down to his dying words, which were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then from another gospel account, what we also gather is how he says, it is finished. You see, he has finished the work that God the Father gave him to do in this world. He has left heaven to be born in a manger. He has appointed his apprentices. He's gone through the toils of everyday ministry, going from city to city. He has now gone from Gethsemane to Golgotha. Yes, Jesus was crucified. He was murdered on a cross innocently, but... There's another component to his death where we also have to acknowledge that Jesus also laid down his life. Jesus voluntarily gave up his spirit. And so we, we hear it in his dying words, but more than anything else, we know that he was dead because it was verified even after he had died. Well, crucifixion was this Roman machine that was designed to inflict maximum pain. It would be a very slow and prolonged death, where it would take four days, five days, some days even more than a week for a crucified person to die. Well, it is a Sabbath day of Passover week. I mean, a Passover was a combination of Christmas and the 4th of July but now we have all of these dying and decaying bodies on the cross, and it's like it's Halloween on Christmas. And so understandably so, the Jews want to speed up the process and to get on with it and to speed up all um, of the dying that is taking place here. And yet what we need to understand, though, is that when Jesus died, this was not a misunderstanding. It wasn't some kind of an optical illusion where Jesus tricked people into thinking that he was dead. There are a lot of skeptics that remain in the world today that say Jesus didn't really die. He took some kind of a sedative or he tricked people, he performed a miracle into making it appear that he was dead. As John writes his gospel, he's writing with the understanding that there were a lot of people known of as, as Gnostics in the world at that time who were denying that Jesus came in a fleshly body. And so that is why he goes out of his way to record in John chapter 19 these words, where it says in John chapter 19 and verse 32 that, so as the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other crucified with Jesus, 
when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out of Jesus blood and water. And so Jesus has already died, but just to remove all doubt, there is one soldier who makes a fatal entry wound into his side that would have instantly killed anyone who was playing possum. It would be like going up to a corpse and unloading a chamber in it and shooting it 12 times. And this was the greatest proof of all of the death of Jesus. This was a wailing flatline on a hospital monitor that when Jesus died, there was no doubt to anybody who was there that not only was he merely dead, but so much more importantly is that Jesus was exactly who he had said that he was. Where we see a mentioning here as well as in the Gospel of Matthew where there were many miracles that were, were occurring as Jesus died. One of those miracles is complete darkness falling over the land for, for three hours from 12 o'clock noon until 3 p.m. Matthew also includes that there were earthquakes and rocks splitting. It's interesting how Roman historians of the time living in regions far removed from Jerusalem write about this earthquake happening. Matthew also says that as Jesus dies, there were graves opening up. And there were godly men and godly women walking out of their tombs alive once again. Now we don't know how long they had been dead, if it was for a few years or for 20 years, if they had lived in King David's time, we don't know. But, I mean, imagine there being a knock on your door this afternoon. A lot of you who have been at Westchester Church for a long time, and you open up the door and Cliff Fralick and Lon... Mahundra were standing there. Imagine what that would have been like. And yet even more amazing though, it says that the curtain of the temp or um, curtain in the temple had been torn from top to bottom. Now this was a veil that for generations had separated sinful man from holy God. And as Jesus dies and as the curtain is ripped from top to bottom, this, this was a time in the day when many of the priests were, were burning incense. They very likely would have witnessed this happening. You see, this is very significant because as, as that curtain is, is torn from top to bottom, what this is proclaiming is that no longer will God be to you as a distant wizard behind the curtain. And yet as the body of Christ was broken on the cross and the curtain had been broken in the temple, you see, what this means for us is that now we can boldly approach the throne of grace in our time of need. And now Jesus and God himself is moving inside us as his living houses of worship and as his holy temples. And so what we see as Jesus dies left and right is that the heavens and that nature itself and that even the um, sun 
has to hide its face from what is happening. Where there's a reverberation from, from the magnitude of all of the sin and depravity of the world falling upon Jesus. You see, this was divine confirmation resoundingly that this is the Son of God. And so in our text in Luke chapter 23 and verse 47, there is a centurion standing there. A centurion was a Roman commander who was over a hundred Roman soldiers, and so he's kind of a supervisor over the crucifixion of Jesus. And this Roman centurion, though, is absolutely filled with awe and with fear. Where it says in verse 47 of Luke 23, Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Now you might have a translation that says, Certainly, truly, this was the Son of God. I mean, what does it say when a Roman governor, Pilate, and when a Roman centurion are not afraid to proclaim that Jesus was innocent and that he was the Son of God? But all of these self-proclaimed orators and oracles of God's nation, the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders of the people, they know who he is, but they are willing to crash and burn being wrong about him. You see, I think the greatest confirmation, though, of all, that Jesus was who he said he was, was not even all of those miracles, but it was the miracle of his love for us. We all remember how Jesus, earlier on in his life, three years prior, was out in a desert being in a state of temptation by Satan. He's fasted 40 days and 40 nights, as we might remember, and, and yet the word that Satan keeps going back to is the word if. He says, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. If you are the Son of God, climb up to the pinnacle of the temple and jump down and let the angels scoop you up before a crowd. You see, that word if is implying that maybe you're not who you say you are, Jesus. So if you really are the Son of God, prove it right now. And now, three years later, we come to his greatest of all temptations. Where the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders and the Sadducees are, are marching up to the cross and they're wagging heads at him. They're saying, we told you, we told you, we told you guys. And they look up at Jesus and they say, fake Messiah, satanic deceiver. And they begin looking up at Jesus and saying, you who is going to rebuild the temple in three days, if you are the son of God, come down from it right now. And if you really are the Son of God and the Messiah that we've long anticipated, save yourself right now. Rip those nails out of your hands and jump off that cross. And never was Satan more a masterful puppeteer 
of the mouths and the tongues of men than he was here. You see, this is the ultimate temptation. I think Satan even knows that less than 24 hours earlier, Jesus had prayed three times, let this cup be removed from me. Maybe even he heard Jesus say in Gethsemane later on that I can call 12 legions of angels just like that and I can be out of here. But now as Jesus spends six hours suffocating to death on a cross, what is written just above his head is, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. It's almost as if Satan is saying, hey, you remember three years ago when I showed you all of the kingdoms of the world sparkling in all of their splendor and, and you could have had all of them if you had just bowed and worshipped me. But Jesus, in the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. And Jesus looks down at his enemies, such as the, the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers, and he looks down at his enemies who were you and me in that time as well. And he spends six hours praying over and over, Father, forgive them, forgive them, forgive them, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. You see, when it comes to Jesus, his name is Azazel. Azazel was a goat in ancient Israel who all of the sins and the guilt of Jerusalem was conferred upon. And they would turn Azazel loose in the wilderness on the Day of Atonement. It was symbolic of all of the sins of the land being removed and purged from Jerusalem. Well, Jesus is the scapegoat of scapegoats. As John the baptizer said, he is the Lamb of God who, who takes away the sin of the world. As the Apostle Paul says, he became sin itself so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so as Jesus Christ is lifted up, he is drawing all men and all women to himself. Every sin of the world is upon him. The sins of Adam and Eve, what they did in the garden, Jesus is dying for it. What Cain did to his brother Abel, Jesus is giving up his life for it. What David did on that rooftop and what King Solomon did with his wives what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah and what happened in our lives, Jesus has all of that darkness and slime upon him. And then at last, as we come to verse 48 of our text in Luke 23, after Jesus has died, it says that all the crowds had assembled who witnessed this spectacle when they saw what had taken place return home beating their chest. See, all of these spectators are paralyzed with the devastating sadness that death inflicts upon the human spirit. They have witnessed the unprecedented outpouring of, of miracles as Jesus died. But I think that they are also sensing the guilt and the corruption of the Pharisees and the elders. They have witnessed the sorrow and the rage that, that nature is expressing 
as, it's, as all the sin of the world has fallen upon Jesus. And yet that is truer, none more than for the 11 apostles now. You see, these 11 disciples are now going to spend a sleepless night and other sleepless nights at the thought that Jesus is dead. It's like every time that they hear Jesus is dead, Jesus is dead, they feel their heart shatter in a million pieces. Where instantly they could feel all of the life and exuberance dissolving from them as this heavy black curtain of darkness moves in. It's like the walls of a dam collapsing. It feels like a gaping hole that has been punctured in their hearts. And it inflicts a paralyzing grief within them. Well, nine hours after the shooting at Ford Theater, across the street at Peterson House, there had been 20 men in a bedroom surrounding the body of Abraham Lincoln. There was a son of the president's who was wailing uncontrollably at his bedside. Until at last, at 721, the president took his last breath. And then 15 seconds later, his heart stopped. And historians write about an absolute silence that had fallen upon the room for five minutes later that felt like an eternity. Well, after Lincoln had died, a doctor took two silver coins out of his pocket and placed them over each one of his eyes. He folded the arms of the president over his chest. And then the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, was heard muttering, He belongs to the ages now. And that's what ex exactly could be said of our loved ones and the saints when, when we die. That we belong to the ages now. It's what was said of Jesus when he cried out and bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And yet we remember, though, something else Jesus said while he was on the cross. Where he was battered beyond recognition. Showing the world that this is a God who would rather be tortured and crucified and mutilated than murder his own enemies. As he cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, laba sabbathini. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Gethsemane, we remember how the apostles had abandoned and forsook Jesus. But at Golgotha, though, God the Father did not abandon or forsake Jesus. It just merely felt like it did. And now Jesus is experiencing what this feels like. It's how David felt in Psalm 22 when he wrote these words for the first time. It's what I felt like in 2014. I'm sure that you have felt that pain before. And yet, he will never abandon or forsake us, but sometimes it will feel as if he has. Well, in closing this morning, 
Every morning, I like to contemplate a different person every day that Jesus healed. Some days I will remember the man who had leprosy. Other days I will remember the woman with the issue of blood. And I'll, I'll just imagine that last moment that they shared with Jesus before he left in order to go to another city. As they found themselves in a living daydream that I, I can see now, that I can walk, that, that I'm no longer a leper. And I like to embody those people because spiritually we are those people. I like to go through the day mentally in that moment that they shared with Jesus before he went to another place. Well, this morning and in the days ahead, I want to do that with the cross. Is I want us to make the cross where our mind always dwells. I want us to make the cross of Jesus our self-worth and our identity. But more than anything else, it needs to become an example to us. And that's because we all have a cross of our own to lift up every single day, don't we? And now it's, it can be said of us now. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Father, deliver me from the cross of self-denial? No, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour in this cross. And so now, as his sons and daughters, we, we cry out, Father, glorify your name in me today. And if we listen just close enough, we can almost faintly hear that thundering angelic voice coming from the sky. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. 